Section One of In the Midst of Life: Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, 1891. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. In the Midst of Life: Tales of Soldiers and Civilians by Ambrose Bierce. Section One: The Suitable Surroundings. The night. One midsummer night, a farmer's boy living about ten miles from the city of Cincinnati was following a bridle path through a dense and dark forest. He had been searching for some missing cows, and at nightfall found himself a long way from home and in a part of the country with which he was only partly familiar. But he was a stout-hearted lad, and knowing his general direction from his home, he plunged into the forest without hesitation, guided by the stars. Coming into the bridle-path, and observing that it ran in the right direction, he followed it. The night was clear, but in the woods it was exceedingly dark. It was more by the sense of touch than that of sight that the lad kept the path. He could not indeed very easily go astray. The undergrowth on both sides was so thick as to be almost impenetrable. He had gone into the forest a mile or more, when he was surprised to see a feeble gleam of light shining through the foliage skirting the path on his left. The sight of it startled him, and set his heart beating audibly. The old breed-house is somewhere about here, he said to himself. This must be the other end of the path, which we reach it by from our side. Ugh! What should a light be doing there? I don't like it." Nevertheless he pushed on. A moment later, and he had emerged from the forest into a small open space, mostly upgrown to brambles. There were remnants of a rotting fence. A few yards from the trail, in the middle of the clearing, was the house from which the light came through an unglazed window. The window had once contained glass but that and its supporting frame had long ago yielded to missiles flung by hands of venturesome boys, to attest alike their courage and their hostility to the supernatural. For the breed-house bore the evil reputation of being haunted. Possibly it was not, but even the hardiest skeptic could not deny that it was deserted, which in rural regions is much the same thing. Looking at the mysterious dim light shining from the ruined window, the boy remembered with apprehension that his own hand had assisted at the destruction. His penitence was, of course, poignant in proportion to its tardiness and inefficacy. He half expected to be set upon by all the unworldly and bodiless malevolences whom he had outraged by assisting to break alike their windows and their peace. Yet this stubborn lad, shaking in every limb, would not retreat. The blood in his veins was strong and rich with the iron of the frontiersman. He was but two removes from the generation which had subdued the Indian. He started to pass the house. As he was going by, he looked in at the blank window-space, and saw a strange and terrifying sight the figure of a man seated in the centre of the room, 
at a table upon which lay some loose sheets of paper. The elbows rested on the table, the hands supporting the head, which was uncovered. On each side the fingers were pushed into the hair. The face showed pale in the light of a single candle a little to one side. The flame illuminated that side of the face, the other was in deep shadow. The man's eyes were fixed upon the blank window-space with a stare in which an older and cooler observer might have discerned something of apprehension, but which seemed to the lad altogether soulless. He believed the man to be dead. The situation was horrible, but not without its fascination. The boy paused in his flight to note it all. He endeavored to still the beating of his heart by holding his breath until half suffocated. He was weak, faint, trembling. He could feel the deathly whiteness of his face. Nevertheless, he set his teeth and resolutely advanced to the house. He had no conscious intention. It was the mere courage of terror. He thrust his white face forward into the illuminated opening. At that instant a strange, harsh cry, a shriek, broke upon the silence of the night, the note of a screech-owl. The man sprang to his feet, overturning the table and extinguishing the candle. The boy took to his heels. THE DAY BEFORE Good morning, Colston. I am in luck, it seems. You have often said that my commendation of your literary work was mere civility, and here you find me absorbed, actually merged, in your latest story in The Messenger. Nothing less shocking than your touch upon my shoulder would have roused me to consciousness. The proof is stronger than you seem to know, replied the man addressed. So keen is your eagerness to read my story that you are willing to renounce selfish considerations and forego all the pleasure that you could get from it. I don't understand you, said the other, folding the newspaper that he held and putting it in his pocket. You writers are a queer lot, anyhow. Come, tell me what I have done or omitted in this matter. In what way does the pleasure that I get, or might get, from your work depend on me? In many ways. Let me ask you how you would enjoy your dinner if you took it in this street-car. Suppose the phonograph so perfected as to be able to give you an entire opera, singing, orchestration and all, do you think you would get much pleasure out of it if you turned it on at your office during business hours? Do you really care for a serenade by Schubert when you hear it fiddled by an untimely Italian on a morning ferry-boat? Are you always cocked and primed for admiration? Do you keep every mood on tap, ready to any demand? Let me remind you, sir, that the story which you have done me the honor to begin, as a means of becoming oblivious to the discomfort of this street-car, is a ghost story. Well? Well, has the reader no duties corresponding to his privileges? You have paid five cents for that newspaper. It is yours. You have the right to read it when and where you will. Much of what is in it is neither helped nor harmed by time and place and mood. 
Some of it actually requires to be read at once, while it is fizzing. But my story is not of that character. It is not the very latest advices from Ghostland. You are not expected to keep yourself au courant with what is going on in the realm of spooks. The stuff will keep until you have leisure to put yourself into the frame of mind appropriate to the sentiment of the piece, which I respectfully submit that you cannot do in a street-car, even if you are the only passenger. The solitude is not of the right sort. An author has rights which the reader is bound to respect. For specific example, the right to the reader's undivided attention. To deny him this is immoral. To make him share your attention with the rattle of a street-car, the moving panorama of the crowds on the sidewalks, and the buildings beyond, with any of the thousands of distractions which make our customary environment, is to treat him with gross injustice. By God, it is infamous! The speaker had risen to his feet and was steadying himself by one of the straps hanging from the roof of the car. The other man looked up at him in sudden astonishment, wondering how so trivial a grievance could seem to justify so strong language. He saw that his friend's face was uncommonly pale, and that his eyes glowed like living coals. "'You know what I mean,' continued the writer impetuously, crowding his words. You know what I mean, Marsh. My stuff in this morning's messenger is plainly subheaded a ghost story. That is ample notice to all. Every honorable reader will understand it as prescribing by implication the conditions under which the work is to be read. The man addressed as Marsh winced a trifle, then asked with a smile, What conditions? You know that I am only a plain businessman who cannot be supposed to understand such things. How, when, where should I read your ghost story? In solitude, at night, by the light of a candle. There are certain emotions which a writer can easily enough excite, such as compassion or merriment. I can move you to tears or laughter under almost any circumstances. But for my ghost story to be effective, you must be made to feel fear, at least a strong sense of the supernatural, and that is a different matter. I have a right to expect that if you read me at all, you will give me a chance, that you will make yourself accessible to the emotion which I try to inspire. The car had now arrived at its terminus and stopped. The trip just completed was its first for the day, and the conversation of the two early passengers had not been interrupted. The streets were yet silent and desolate, the housetops were just touched by the rising sun. As they stepped from the car and walked away together, Marsh narrowly eyed his companion, who was reported, like most men of uncommon literary ability, to be addicted to various destructive vices. That is the revenge which dull minds take upon bright ones in resentment of their superiority. Mr. Colston was known as a man of genius. There are honest souls who believe that genius is a mode of excess. It was known that Colston did not drink liquor, but many said that he ate opium. 
Something in his appearance that morning, a certain wildness of the eyes, uh, an unusual pallor, a thickness and rapidity of speech, were taken by Mr. Marsh to confirm the report. Nevertheless, he had not the self-denial to abandon a subject which he found interesting, however it might excite his friend. "'Do you mean to say,' he began, "'that if I take the trouble to observe your directions, place myself in the condition which you demand, solitude, night, and a tallow candle, you can, with your ghastliest work, give me an uncomfortable sense of the supernatural, as you call it? Can you accelerate my pulse, make me start at sudden noises, send a nervous chill along my spine, and cause my hair to rise? Colston turned suddenly and looked him squarely in the eyes as they walked. You would not dare. You have not the courage, he said. He emphasized the words with a contemptuous gesture. You are brave enough to read me in a street-car, but in a deserted house, alone, in the forest, at night? Ah, I have a manuscript in my pocket that would kill you. Marsh was angry. He knew himself a man of courage, and the words stung him. If you know such a place, he said, take me there to-night, and leave me your story and a candle. Call for me when I've had time enough to read it, and I'll tell you the entire plot and kick you out of the place. That is how it occurred that the farmer's boy, looking in at an unglazed window of the breed house, saw a man sitting in the light of a candle. THE DAY AFTER Late in the afternoon of the next day, three men and a boy approached the breed house from that point of the compass toward which the boy had fled the preceding night. They were in high spirits, apparently. They talked loudly and laughed. They made facetious and good-humored ironical remarks to the boy about his adventure, which evidently they did not believe in. The boy accepted their raillery with seriousness, making no reply. He had a sense of the fitness of things, and knew that one who professes to have seen a dead man rise from his seat and blow out a candle is not a creditable witness. Arriving at the house and finding the door bolted on the inside, the party of investigators entered without further ceremony than breaking it down. Leading out of the passage into which this door had opened was another on the right and one on the left. These two doors also were fastened and were broken in. They first entered at random the one on the left. It was vacant. In the room on the right, the one which had the blank front window, was the dead body of a man. It lay partly on one side, with the forearm beneath it, the cheek on the floor. The eyes were wide open. The stare was not an agreeable thing to encounter. An overthrown table, a partly burned candle, a chair, and some paper with writing on it were all else that the room contained. The men looked at the body, touching the face in turn. The boy gravely stood at the head, assuming a look of ownership. It was the proudest moment of his life. One of the men said to him, 
you're a good un a remark which was received by the two others with nods of acquiescence it was skepticism apologizing to truth then one of the men took from the floor the sheets of manuscript and stepped to the window for already the evening shadows were glooming the forest the song of the whippoorwill was heard in the distance and a monstrous beetle sped by the window on roaring wings and thundered away out of hearing the manuscript before committing the act which rightly or wrongly i have resolved on and appearing before my maker for judgment i james r colston deem it my duty as a journalist to make a statement to the public my name is i believe tolerably well known to the people as a writer of tragic tales but the soberest imagination never conceived anything so gloomy as my own life and history not in incident my life has been destitute of adventure and action but my mental career has been lurid with experiences such as kill and damn i shall not recount them here some of them are written and ready for publication elsewhere the object of these lines is to explain to whomsoever may be interested that my death is voluntary my own act i shall die at twelve o'clock on the night of the fifteenth of july a significant anniversary to me for it was on that day and at that hour that my friend in time and eternity charles breed performed his vow to me by the same act which his fidelity to our pledge now entails upon me he took his life in his little house in the copeton woods there was the customary verdict of temporary insanity had i testified at that inquest had i told all i knew they would have called me mad i have still a week of life in which to arrange my worldly affairs and prepare for the great change it is enough for i have but few affairs and it is now four years since death became an imperative obligation i shall bear this writing on my body the finder will please hand it to the coroner james r colston p s willard marsh on this the fatal fifteenth day of july i hand you this manuscript to be opened and read under the conditions agreed upon and at the place which i designate i forego my intention to keep it on my body to explain the manner of my death which is not important it will serve to explain the manner of yours i am to call for you during the night to receive assurance that you have read the manuscript you know me well enough to expect me but my friend it will be after twelve o'clock may god have mercy on our souls j r c before the man who was reading this manuscript had finished the candle had been picked up and lighted when the reader had done he quietly thrust the paper against the flame and despite the protestations of the others held it until it was burnt to ashes the man who did this and who placidly endured a severe reprimand from the coroner was a son-in-law of the late charles breed 
at the inquest nothing could elicit an intelligible account of what the paper contained from the times yesterday the commissioners of lunacy committed to the asylum mr james r colston a writer of some local reputation connected with the messenger it will be remembered that on the evening of the fifteenth instant mr colston was given into custody by one of his fellow lodgers in the bain house who had observed him acting very suspiciously baring his throat and whetting a razor occasionally trying its edge by actually cutting through the skin of his arm and so forth on being handed over to the police the unfortunate man made a desperate resistance and has ever since been so violent that it has been necessary to keep him in a straitjacket. Most of our esteemed contemporaries' other writers are still at large. End of section one.